I'm Annie Apple, and I'm here to invite you to come and listen to my new podcast series, Raising April. It's the most intimate sports-related conversations you will hear. Each week, we explore the journeys of some of your favorite NFL players through the eyes of those that know them best. From Joe Burr, DeAndre Hopkins, Miles Garrett, Ezekiel Elliott, Nick and Joey Boza, just to name a few. With exclusive insights and information, we leave no stone unturned. Subscribe now to Raising a Pro on your favorite podcast app. You're listening to a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hello and welcome to a new edition of Q&A, our weekly podcast offering from the Hindustan Times, where I pick up a contemporary issue and seek to answer some fundamental questions around it. This week, I want to discuss the Delhi violence and go beyond the local immediate triggers of the violence to what the episode represents. In particular, I want to ask the following set of questions. What is it that the riots in Delhi tell us about the state of India's governance and social relations? What was the domestic as well as the international fallout of the Delhi violence? What are the lessons it offers us? What is the warning it gives us in terms of the situation in other states? To begin with, what is it that the Delhi violence reveals? We know that over 50 people have died. We know that property worth crores has got damaged. But fundamentally, there are three or four things that the Delhi episode reveals. The first is the fragile state of inter-community relations in India. India, we know, is a diverse country. Hindus and Muslims have lived in coexistence. There have been occasional riots in the past. There have been tensions between communities. But what we are witnessing is a deepening of these fault lines. What we are witnessing in the wake of the passage of the Citizenship Amendment Act, the government's decision to revise the National Population Register framework, and speculation over a possible national register of citizens. Is the increasing insecurity among the country's minorities, particularly Muslims, which is why we've seen a spate of protests, the most iconic of them being at Shaheen Bagh. At the same time, we are also noticing that Hindus feel aggrieved that Muslims have taken offence to a law which they believe will give refuge to other minorities, persecuted minorities in neighbouring countries. This has translated itself into occasional tensions and violence. The second is the inflammatory rhetoric by a section of the political leadership. In particular, I think it's important to point out that leaders of the Bharatiya Janata Party in the run-up to the Delhi elections and after the Delhi elections have used provocative rhetoric. Before the violence in Delhi, we saw Kapil Mishra, a candidate who had contested on the BJP ticket, issue pretty stern provocative warnings and that is said to be one of the triggers for what followed. The third is the failure of institutions. When there is a law and order issue, the responsibility of addressing it, tackling it immediately, nipping it in the bud, rests with the police. In this case, the Delhi police has come across as either thoroughly incompetent or complicit in the violence. Its delayed response, its inertia and the fact that violence could continue for over 72 hours without the firm projection of state power reflects poorly on the Delhi police. We have also seen from the Delhi violence the possibility of the misuse of social media platforms. 
WhatsApp, Facebook and the role that fake news and rumors play in fomenting tensions. What has been the fallout of these riots? Domestically, as I mentioned, people have died. There has been damage to property. But it goes beyond that. The episode has only deepened the polarization that exists both politically and socially. Domestically, we are also seeing parliament being logjammed on the issue. The opposition wants to discuss Delhi violence immediately. The government is reluctant to discuss it and has said that it will do so after Holi. This has meant that the first week of parliament's post-recess in the budget session has gone waste. But I think we are also seeing an impact internationally. We have seen India draw flack in the international media, particularly in Western newspapers. We have seen prominent leaders in Western democracies criticize India's record. But we are also seeing an additional backlash from the Islamic world. Ever since the government took its decision on revoking the special status in Kashmir, Turkey and Malaysia had been critical of India. But after the Delhi violence, several other countries joined ranks. This included Indonesia, an important Indian ally in the Asia-Pacific. It included Iran, another historic civilizational ally of India, which has quite strongly come out against India's record of treating its Muslims. All of this runs the risk of frittering away the diplomatic gains that India has made, including in Narendra Modi's first term in office. What is the warning that Delhi gives us, particularly with reference to the situation in other states? Since intercommunity relations are fragile, and since there is a somewhat vicious climate after the passage of the CAA, I think it's important to keep an eye on three important states which are going to polls in the next year and a half. The first is Bihar. Bihar has had a history of intercommunity tensions. Remember the Bhagalpur violence of the late 80s. Bihar has had a history of intercommunity tensions and violence. And the opposition to the CAA, NPR, NRC package, as it were, has been quite intense in Bihar. There have been massive rallies in Simanchal, which is the Muslim-dominated area of Bihar. There has been a pretty good response to the Padyatra and the march of Kanahiya Kumar, the Communist Party of India's young leader. The Bihar Assembly itself has passed a resolution rejecting the NRC and saying that the NPR must be held within the old 2010 format instead of the additional questions which are being asked now. As elections approach in Bihar at the end of the year, it's important that leaders refrain from inflammatory rhetoric. Otherwise, the situation could turn violent. But the more worrying situation is in another neighbouring state of Bihar, which is West Bengal. West Bengal goes to polls in 2021. Many believe that the CAA was actually brought in to address BJP's political agenda in West Bengal, where it is seeking to challenge the dominance of Mamta Banerjee. West Bengal also has a history of political violence. The rule of law is weak and we have often seen political workers from different parties engage in murders, in kidnapping, in pretty brutal exchanges. It is therefore important that both Trinamool and the BJP play their role in calming tempers. Unfortunately, what we are witnessing as polls approach is an intensification of this tension. The third state, which is crucial, is Assam. Assam is where the NRC process has actually taken place. Over 1.9 million residents of the state stare at an uncertain future. The passage of the CAA has also led to an upsurge in Assamese sub-nationalism, 
with many indigenous Assamese believing that this will lead to a, an increase in immigration, an issue that they have fought against for three decades or longer. It has also led to an upsurge in tensions between Assamese Hindus and Bangla-speaking Muslims. It is in these three states, Bihar, Bengal and Assam, that it's important that Delhi does not get repeated. What is it that Delhi tells us that we need to be careful of? One, inflammatory rhetoric of political leaders. Be responsible. Words have consequences. Asking supporters to shoot traitors is not responsible. Warning people that if you do not vote for us, riots will happen and nobody will do anything to save you is not responsible. What is responsible is building bridges between communities, even as you compete politically. The second lesson is the role of institutions, particularly the police. The police has to be autonomous of political pressure. The police has to be independent. The police has to be non-partisan. The police must respond and win the trust of local communities. And if there is a law and order issue, the police must respond, even if it is with strong force. The third lesson is the role of social media platforms, as I mentioned earlier. I am not advocating censorship, but there has to be stronger regulation to ensure that WhatsApp and Facebook do not become a medium for hate. Political parties have to ensure that their own supporters do not use these platforms to build hate against other communities. If we do not ensure responsible rhetoric, if we do not ensure functioning state institutions, if we do not crack down on the role of fake news, we are going to see a repeat of Delhi in other states. That will be very worrying. That brings us to the end of this edition of Q&A. If you have questions you want to ask us, if there are issues you want us to address, please write to us at podcasts at hindustantimes.com. Please also follow us on all our social media handles, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We are at HT Smartcast. You can also find us on our new website, htsmartcast.com. We look forward to talking to you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HT Smartcast. I'm Annie Apple and I'm here to invite you to come and listen to my new podcast series, Raising April. It's the most intimate sports related conversations you will hear. Each week we explore the journeys of some of your favorite NFL players through the eyes of those that know them best. From Joe Burrow, DeAndre Hopkins, Miles Garrett, Ezekiel Elliott, Nick and Joey Boza, just to name a few. With exclusive insights and information, we leave no stone unturned. Subscribe now to Raising a Pro on your favorite podcast app.